destino para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 39 for Sunday, February 9th, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. This week, we're going to be looking at some of the broader lessons that we hope people will learn from the the documentary film and from my family's story. Hopefully, we're bringing home the cost of war to a family. Right, and and that's something that we're trying to do in the film. So that the next time there's somebody on TV saying, we need to go to war in Iraq, this is in our our national interest, and if we don't do it, there's going to be a mushroom cloud, that we we say, well, wait a minute here. This is what war means. The U.S. has obviously influenced a lot of conflicts, and uh, oftentimes there are these broader overarching foreign policy goals right or wrong, there is this tremendous human cost. And a lot of telling your story is showing what hap- what can happen to a family. You know, you can extrapolate this to a lot of families. <laughs> so that's what we're going to hope to accomplish in today's episode. And it might be uh, a little bit tricky. So bear with us. We're going to start by briefly talking about an article that I found as I was putting together last week's podcast. The, the article is called New Memo, Kissinger Gave Green Light for Argent- Argentina's Dirty War. It's by David Korn. It's in Mother Jones, dated January 14th, and we will provide a link for those interested. And the reason that this article I thought was so interesting was because in that episode we talked about Henry Kissinger's links to Chile and overthrowing the government there. People disappearing in the late 70s and early 80s. And then we talked about Argentina. Which had 10 times the amount of people disappear at the same time frame. You know, uh, Chile had several thousand. Um, Argentina had several tens of thousands. And the article links Henry Kissinger to the dirty war in Argentina. And it's not a direct link, but it is sort of more evidence of his involvement down there. Direct link, it's not direct evidence. Right. It says he's an enabler and he greenlit the military to expedite human rights abuses. And the the question that this kind of raises is why a U.S. foreign diplomat was so involved with these wars that had very, very bad outcomes for the people who lived there. We should describe what very, very bad outcomes are. I mean, essentially... Right counterinsurgency tactics were employed against the civilian population, professors, students, labor organizers, left-wing agitators, not not people that were picking up guns and saying, I'm going to overthrow the government, okay? Normal people living daily lives were essentially rounded up, put in concentration camps, and killed. Some of the methods of killing were horrific. There were these things called death flights, and this is well documented, and I'm not making this up, where people were loaded into planes, drugged up, um, then flown out over a river or the ocean and thrown out of the planes. Another really kind of horrific aspect of this is, is pregnant women were often allowed to live until they conceived their babies. The babies were given to families and supporters of the military regime, and then the women were 
killed in various fashions. You know, this is dark stuff that happened. You know, not that long ago, and apparently this article describes it as with Henry Kissinger's blessing. The question that I'm interested in and that we've talked about in other forums is, why is that? What's the mindset behind, and maybe it's not even Henry Kissinger specifically, but of the times, right? Why is it that it was such an imperative to undercut these in governments to get rid of these left-leaning individuals or statesmen or... Why do we have such blinders on when it came time for human rights? And what does it mean when we have blinders on about human rights? Right. right? So what was it about the time that allowed us to put these blinders on? What you've kind of told me before is that it has to deal a lot with the Cold War and the, the mindset at the time. So... That might I grew be up a more great... in the Cold War than you did. You right, know? right. And that's, I think, what's interesting about the, the two of us and what I've put where I have pushed you before, because you're looking at it with this Cold War mindset that I don't even know or understand. So well, it'd, it'd be great if you got into that a little bit. Like, what was the mindset at, at the time? I don't know. I don't know. That's a big question. What was it like yeah. growing up in the Cold War? <laughs> but I mean, I grew up. A lot in the Reagan era, where you know the USSR was the evil empire, um, that was his phrase for it. I just say that there, everything was viewed in two ways, and and it was like, what side are you on? The U.S.'s side or, or the Russian side or the Soviet side, right? I think we just had sort of goggles on about about that, and it was uh, very much like a, a black and white world. Um, not that everyone viewed it that way, but that's sort of the way our foreign policy operated, is, is there were two spheres of influence, and countries sort of had a choice of they could line up with the Russians or they could line up with the, the Americans, you know? I guess I learned a lot about this, this mindset from the Henry Kissinger uh, documentary that we've, we've talked about before, The Trials of Henry Kissinger, and, you know, that film focuses a lot on the sort of Vietnam era politics where, as you described, we'd play two sides against each other for uh, an outcome. And there was this whole madman theory and a lot of different ways of viewing the world that were, as you say, black and white. And that, um, I guess, was... I don't want to say a shock, but very interesting for me to learn about. In other words, it wasn't something familiar to to my upbringing, I suppose. Your more your more formative years have to do with nine eleven and and well, no, uh, not even my more formative years were in the nineties, like after after the Berlin Wall. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. when America was going through, I guess, a, a very prosperous time mm-hmm. you know the the mid 90s bill clinton era um not a lot of fear right i mean yeah. really no no international fear that i mean we had operation desert storm but you know that was very short and we didn't really understand there were like it 143 or... lives lost on the u.s side and 
Yeah. You know, the the ground war lasted like three weeks or something. Right. Right. So, you know, so this this concept of evil empires is just you know nothing that we ever had to to deal with. Basically, I I think there was a a bit of a things were viewed in this one way, and there was a lot of paranoia, and and so people in Argentina that maybe wanted a better life, you know, a lot of these Latin American societies were, you know, there were, the wealth distribution was really, really, really skewed, and people who wanted to fight for some labor rights or or some land reform um, were grouped in this category, and and these internal conflicts um, in these societies became viewed differently by U.S. foreign policy people like Henry Kissinger, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, your your dad aspiring to become a tailor, basically he didn't have the avenues to pursue that because of corruption and so forth. You know, him trying to have a voice about that became life-threatening for him, right? And there wasn't freedom of speech in these countries the way we we have in the United States. There wasn't freedom of the press. I mean, you could be disappeared because you weren't on the government side of things. These, just, you know, so you have these internal conflicts which all of a sudden are made into something else. Nixon has said this: is if if Chile had if Chile elected a socialist president, and uh, and he said we can't have a, a red sandwich. You know, Latin America stuck between Cuba and Chile. All of a sudden, it's all going to somehow. It's like the domino theory in Southeast Asia with Vietnam. If we cave here, it's all going to be red. And and uh, I'm jumping from country to country and conflict to conflict. But but you know, El Salvador was really the place. And they say this: we're drawing the line in El Salvador. You know, Nicaragua flipped in like you know fairly bloodless revolution and became a a communist country almost overnight. And it scared the hell out of you know, the hawks in American foreign policy, and the fear was that El Salvador was next, and it probably was. They said, that's not going to happen. Like, the cost be damned, that's not going to happen, basically. Like, a line is drawn here, and whatever it takes. And and that gets to the point of our documentary, right? You know, that's... I hope wasn't too scattered. I am jumping around a little bit. No, I, I thought that was great, because to me, you know, this goes back to the mindset thing. I still have a hard time understanding, we would sort of undercut a democratically elected government because we disagreed with the leader. You know, like that, that was very hard. And I guess still is hard for me to accept. We grow up in America, democracy, freedom, all that kind of stuff. And then to find out that it's only good to a point, And then we say, nope, like, we can have our freedom, but you can't have yours, basically. And there's a lot of history of that happening, in the, and, and well-documented, non-conspiratorial, like, you know, the CIA basically making coups happen in Iran, okay, in Guatemala, um, where democratically elected presidents were chucked in favor of, basically, U.S.-installed presidents. How do we bring this home? Because I feel like it's been a little, all over a little the disconnected. Place. So. As we've researched the film, we've looked at all these other conflicts. We've watched the Henry Kissinger documentary. We've watched the films about Chile. We've, you know, read 
um, about, about Argentina, uh, about Argentina and Iraq even. And in these societies, often it's these counterinsurgency tactics are employed on populations. The point being in these societies, it's a time of war. And when in a time of war, you know, human rights go out, out the window and, and awful things start to happen. And, and, and you know, we, we, we talk about that here after 9-11. We, we loosened up our own view of human rights and we had, we had undisclosed detention centers around the world which are starting to be documented. You know, we would we have Guantanamo Bay. We put a lot of bad people but there's, it's also, there's a lot of documentation where we just did a lot of roundups and there were a lot of people that, that really were, were um, victims you know, that were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then once they got into a place like Guantanamo Bay, they they were not getting out for five years, ten years. Basically, we disappeared them, right? And I think this comes from somewhere. I think we have a long history of this. The point is, like, you know, these some of the dark things that you hear about in the dirty war in Argentina, which are almost indescribable and inhumane, there's echoes of it today in our foreign policy, you know. And uh, I just think that if we have a better understanding of of where it comes from, who who believes it, and what it has to do with, that we could have more informed conversations about contemporary things that we get involved in. All right. So let me let me try and tie it all together again. And okay, then... and I'll shut up. <laughs> We've been talking about the sort of. U.S. foreign policy over a number of years and what the mindset behind that was. And the point of the film is to try and contrast that mindset with the cost of war on an individual basis. And to me, the the sort of icon of this struggle is with my birth father, who in El Salvador wanted to be a tailor growing up. You know, when he was a teenager and going into college, he wanted to open up his own uh, shop, his own business, but could not because of corruption and all these other forces at play in El Salvador. And then he joins a revolution which tries to, you know, which has this ideal of making a fair society for all. And that doesn't well, go well. A- what well, was a political movement? I mean, right. he, 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 he joined, was way involved way before it was military. Right? right. He joins this political movement in an attempt to eat, level the playing field so that he can be a tailor. And after years and years of struggle and an armed conflict and losing everything that was probably near and dear to him, his wife, his son, his country his you know he never got to see his parents again after losing all of that he moves to a country where he opens his own business making t-shirts and he now has you know a house two cars a couple dogs kids right yeah what we yeah what we would call the american dream you know so it's just looking at the world in this black and white way blinds us from seeing that we're we're not all that different. And that's something that you wrote in the introduction paragraph to the film, that at the heart of this film or story is the belief that finding what makes us alike or connected 
can change the world. And I think that that really gets to the point of both this episode and, and what we're trying to do with the film. I remember, I'm very proud of that line. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I hope, we've jumped around a lot, but I, I hope um, by taking examples like your dad or taking examples like your grandmother, um, whose amazing persistence and uh, drive and, and hope over more than a decade you know, to look for you, I, I hope that we implant some images about war that aren't, uh, you know, Rambo, first blood, like I'm going to, uh, you know, we walk into a movie theater and, and kill 100 people and there's no consequence and there's no lasting impact and we munch our popcorn and we go home. That's not what war is, you know. War is fought by real people with families and, uh, and the consequences are lifelong. Generations uh, long. And, yeah, and and these people have something to share about about it. Perfect. Well, that's that is a great place to end it. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.